0: Well, as we've been studying now Isaiah chapter 58, this is our second week in the chapter and we're gonna be um, here for the next few weeks. Um, It was fun for me to be able to uh, come back to this chapter um, and to study it once again. It's a familiar chapter that I've enjoyed coming to time and time again. Um, And in this particular time, I actually saw something in the passage that I haven't quite seen the same way before. And to me, that's just one of the joys of studying scripture. I've been studying scripture seriously now for over 35 years. And it's kind of like a diamond. Uh, it's got multiple facets. And there's just kind of those days where one of the facets kind of gets your attention and you're drawn to it. And then you just experience the beauty uh, that's, that's in that particular uh, l- kind of look at the scriptures. And so the the passage isn't really about this, but it undergirds the passage. it's, It's implicit in the passage. And here's what I saw. I saw that God's power is demonstrated in the most amazing and unexpected way that we could ever possibly imagine. His power is demonstrated in humility. And that was something that just jumped through the spaces of the pages or the words as I read them. You see, if if I were God, and all of us can be really glad that I'm not, um, you know, but if I were, I I might think differently about how I might demonstrate my power. Uh, it might look like uh, something I saw a few weeks back. Um, I actually uh, went to a WWE event when they had. <laughs> the big extravaganza that went on all week long here. Well, I got a call from a friend and he he said, Jeff, uh, I have a couple of tickets. Would you and your son Michael like to come out? We've got box seats and he's really into this, and so I said, why not? You know, I'm not particularly a guy who follows WWE, but this was my chance to take in that kind of unique segment of American culture, uh, unique look at Americana, and so uh, off we went, and uh, we went to experience WWE that evening, and it was awesome. <laughs> I had such a good time. In, in my favorite part of the night, uh, this was the NXT night for those of you that really follow it, and, and the champion of the NXT is Bobby Roode. All right, so you have all these matches kind of leading up to it, but this is the kind of the big event. And they really put on a show. So the ring is kind of in the center of the Amway Center there, and, and off to one end is kind of the stage that they've set up for the grand entrance when they walk out onto the stage. And so Bobby Roode, being the champion that he is, just before he comes along, the lights start dancing all over the, the auditorium there, and the music starts humming, and the crowd, you can feel the anticipation building, and then poof, pyrotechnics go off, and then the song breaks out and hits his walk-up song. It's a song every time that he wrestles, this is his song. And and it's actually pretty cool, it's it's called Glorious. And I won't sing it for you, uh, but that's kind of his moniker. And so you can see the bright white light that he comes walking out of as he walks out on stage as he saunters really slowly. And the whole place is singing his song, Glorious it was really a sight to be seen. And so I went up and I looked it up on Google and it's really a a big thing. Now, let me warn you in advance, if you listen to the song and start singing it, you can't get it out of your mind. It'll be with you for a couple days. So that's kind of a warning uh, in advance if you decide to do that. But I I really enjoyed that. That was pretty cool. Um, Sometimes I wonder why God just doesn't say enough. And put on a cosmic display of his power that would just dwarf anything you see at these big main events. I mean, just a legion of angels together singing out in chorus. And God putting on a cosmic display of his power and glory in the heavens for all the world to see. And him standing up and just saying, I am God, follow me. I don't understand why God doesn't do that. That's not, however, as we know, how he's chosen to reveal his power. It's not a big main event like that. No, God does it in the most unexpected of ways. He demonstrates his power through humility. And this is perhaps best seen in the person of Jesus Christ. Paul, who wrote the book of Philippians and much of our New Testament, he was trained. In the Mosaic Law in the Old Testament. He was a Pharisee, but he is also one of the leading writers for New Testament, um, the, the Bible and the New Testament. And he was deep in understanding God. And what he understood and what he knew is the person of Jesus was to embody all that the people of God for all time have been called to. And so he starts this description of Christ's humility by saying. Have this attitude in yourselves that was in Christ Jesus. He's speaking to us to be humble like him. Who, although he existed as divinity, although he existed as God, did not grasp equality with God or as a thing to be grasped. In other words, he didn't cling to his divinity, but he emptied himself and became a servant. In other words, he gave up his divine privilege to become our servant and becoming obedient to the father and served us by obeying and going to the cross and dying in our place is what Paul says in that passage. And he demonstrates for all time what true humility looks like. We like to say around here, humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's not self-abasement. It's just thinking of yourself less. And so Jesus demonstrates that he didn't give up his divinity. He just didn't cling to its privileges. He didn't think less of himself, but what he was thinking about is not himself, but us. He thought of himself less. It says in Hebrews that for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. What kept him there was seeing the reward of being in relationship with you and me. That's the humility that our God demonstrates. That's the power that our God demonstrates. And for all of God's people for all time, he calls us to do the same. To demonstrate that kind of power with humility. Well, with that in mind, let's look at Isaiah 58, uh, the passage we're studying. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. If you, if not, you can look in our bulletin. I've put it in my notes so that I can read it. I'm getting old. I, I can't see the smaller font here. So let me read that to you. Shout it aloud and do not hold back Raise your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their rebellion and to the descendants of Jacob their sins. For day after day they seek me out. They seem eager to know my ways as if they were a nation that does what is right and has not forsaken the commands of its God. They ask me for just decisions. They seem eager for God to come near them. Why have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you've not noticed? Yet on the day of your fasting, you do as you please and exploit all your workers. Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife and striking each other with wicked fists. You cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. Is this the kind of fast I've chosen? Only for a day for people to humble themselves? Is it only for bowing one's head like a reed and for lying in sackcloth and ashes? Is that what you call a fast? A day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen? To loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke? To set the oppressed free and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter? When you see the naked to clothe them and to not turn away from your own flesh and blood. This is God's word. Can you see the heart of God in this passage? And can you see that his people were misusing their power? And in addition to that, they're trying to kind of do religious stuff to get more of God's power appropriated to them, more of God's blessing appropriated to them. They wanted God to come near them and bless them for what? So they went through their religious and pious motions of fasting and prayer and pulling out sackcloth and laying out ashes and covering themselves in ashes, which by the way, were symbols that they would use in prayer. The ashes were to remind them that they were going from dust to dust. And it was a symbol saying, God, we recognize that we're finite created beings. The sackcloth was a thick burlap, no light could get through. And so they would use it for covering. As if to symbolize God, we recognize our sin and our shame, and we want to cover that. We want to acknowledge our finiteness. We want to acknowledge our sinfulness. All the while, they were abusing their power, and they weren't repentant in the slightest. They were mistreating their fellow Israelites. They were enslaving them. That's what this idea of the yoke was. They were putting yokes, enslavement, on people that couldn't pay their bills. And of course they couldn't pay it off in that situation. They were mistreating foreigners whom God told them to be hospitable to. They were mistreating and seeking to find gain from their own families for Pete's sake. And they had hearts that had become callous. They were indifferent to the needs of the homeless, indifferent to the needs of the hungry, indifferent to the needs of the poor. And that became the state of their heart. And all the while they were trying to use God and they called it worship. Pretty sad state. Now, before we get too high and mighty in our our critique of what was going on there, and it was bad, it's written for a reason. And whenever we read what happened to the people of God that have gone before us, it's there for our instruction as well. And so here, God invites us to examine our own worship. What's going on in our hearts today? Is our heart open and soft towards the injustices that are going on around us, to the oppression that we see all over the world and in our very society, to the people around us that have need or our hearts callous. What does our worship look like? God wants our worship to look like his humility, his strength and power to worship him in a different way, a way that imitates his character, a way that cares about these sorts of things. That's how God wields power. In humility and strength, he cares for the people who cannot care for themselves. And by the way, spiritually speaking, that's you and me. And I'm so thankful for it. So when we join God and we worship him in this way, it opens up our Christianity and our hearts to amazing blessing. And that's what I want to talk to you about today. I first experienced this uh, in in a different and a profound way. I came from a tradition that really emphasized the the proclaiming of God's word, the proclaiming of the life-changing message of the gospel. And that's central to what we do as Christians. But truth be told, we weren't as strong in the area of demonstrating the love of God to the world. But I, I got to see the power of that in 1998 through the most unfortunate of circumstances. Um, I had been a, I was the president of a a missions agency that did church planning all over the world and had spent a lot of time in the tiny nation of Honduras down in Central America. Um, And the church movement there had grown quite large. And I had traveled there frequently, had numerous friends. Um, And I got word that Hurricane Mitch in late October, November was forming in the Gulf of Mexico. I um, mean, it was just a killer storm. 180 mile an hour sustained winds. And I remember it was coming from the east and it was kind of tracking along slowly and it was a dead bullseye going to this town called La Ceiba, which is a beautiful coastal town uh, right there on the Gulf of Mexico. And the thing about Ceiba is, um, about a mile and a half to two miles inland, there's the a, a, a mountain range and it just goes straight up about three, 4,000 feet. It's just this beautiful, magnificent place. And had that hurricane continued to just go on its path, it would have been utter devastation. With the backdrop of the mountain, it would have just scraped it clean. It was really a life and death situation for these people. And I remember my friend, Dagoberto, he's the pastor of the church there. Uh, The church gathered in many different places up on the mountain that evening and they were praying all night long, oh God, please spare our lives. And I don't know how all this works because the tragedy that they averted ended up moving elsewhere. And so Mitch actually backed up, turned around, and then went inland and parked over Honduras for three days and it just torrential rains. It was the worst natural disaster in Western Hemisphere at that time, though since then Haiti has surpassed it. Over 7,500 people lost their lives. Some people think it was up to 10,000. 90% of the crops were gone. It's an agrarian nation. 75% of the roads and the infrastructure wiped out. Think about that. I-4, can't get through. 417, not there. All the, br- all the bridges are down. The country was in just total devastation. And so normally we hear these things because these things happen and it's on the CNN, it's on the news cycle for 24 hours, maybe 48 hours. And we get concerned and we get compassion Then the news cycle kind of moves on and and it's the next natural disaster and we can get compassion fatigue in, in many of these cases. But for me this time it couldn't go that way. These were my friends. These are the people that I loved. And, and the news cycle moved on, but my heart couldn't. And I was so eager to get into the country, but the airport was closed. And so we waited on pins and needles. Finally, about uh, almost two weeks in, the airport opened up. I was one, uh, I'm one of the first flights in. And I remember uh, kind of coming through the area on the first floor, up on the wall about 10, 11 feet up was the stain mark of the floodwaters that just two weeks prior had filled this place and it was really a poignant reminder of what just happened. So I jumped in the car, we went over to the Olympic Stadium about five miles from the airport, and there the entire compound was just filled with uh, a tent city, Uh, makeshift canvas tents had been set up and thousands and thousands of families were there because they were displaced and homeless. And when we were there, it began to rain and the rain would pelt against the thin, flimsy, Uh, canvas above our heads and it would seep down. And I just remember sitting and praying with these families thinking, oh my goodness, what would it be like to be in their situation? And when you're faced with such horrific tragedy, your heart just wants to explode. It just feels so overwhelming. Thank goodness for Franklin Graham and Samaritan's Purse. What an organization. They were one of the first people in, they have their own planes, they flew in, they got their helicopters and everything else in there and uh, their immediate medical relief began to happen. And they chose our church to be their partner for their rebuilding effort of Honduras. And so for the next two years, we had the privilege of working alongside of them. We were able to provide temporary housing and medical relief for 250,000 and quarter million people. We were able to build 5,000 homes for the homeless and pass out over 3 million uh, Operation Christmas Child gifts to the children. It was really something to be a part of. My role in the process is I went back to Churches in America, was able to raise a million dollars for the various families that had need and helped to distribute that to help raise uh, or to meet some of those needs that were going on. What I saw was the gospel in power demonstrated. Two years later, we went into that same Olympic stadium that once housed the 10th city and Franklin put on a crusade like his daddy Billy Graham an old fashioned crusade in the stadium filled with 55,000 people both nights. And the next morning as we had breakfast, he said to us, it's by far the most successful crusade he had ever been a part of. Why? Well, for two years, he showed them the love of Christ. For two years, he came and lived with them and came alongside them and showed them and pointed to them that God cares about your need. God cares about the situation you're in and we're gonna be the hands and feet of Jesus and we're gonna stand with you. What a powerful, powerful lesson. Telling the gospel is central. demonstrating the gospel is equally important. And it's through that demonstration that we rise up in care for the oppressed and we stand against things like injustice. Listen to what N.T. Wright, the theologian writes. He says, when God wants to run the world in his way, He doesn't send in the tanks. He sends in the meek, the mourners, the peacemakers, and the people hungry for justice. By the time the bullies wake up and realize what is going on, they've set up schools, they've built hospices, they've made peace, and brought warring armies back together again. Isn't that cool? I just love that. And the message for us this morning is God wants us to respond and worship to him in this way. And the danger that we run here is because I know when I'm sitting where you're sitting, it's like, oh, that just feels like one more thing. I've got to stuff into my already very, very full life. And, and I get it. right? I know many of you are already full. There's not room for one more thing. I was just at a Summit Connect group down in Lake Nona last Sunday. And, and all the couples in the group, there's like eight couples, they all have children two years and younger. And those little rascals will tire you out. Right. It's hard chasing them around, right? And so you sit here and you hear this kind of message. You go, Lord, I'm tired. I don't have a... All right. So, so for you where you're at, I don't think God wants you to put one more thing on top of your already busy schedule. I really don't. What I think God wants you to do is within that busy schedule, open up your heart and pray because God's already working in the places you go. God's already working in the places where you live. Ask God to show you where he's working and how you can join him in doing that. Isn't that helpful? He's not asking you to put one more thing on an overly stuffed schedule. He's asking you to be aware within the schedule you have. Now, the good news is you're not going to always be full to the brim. There's going to be capacity. And we have choices to make as to how we create capacity in our lives. And so what I want to spend the balance of our time is, is helping us to understand the motivations why we serve, the motivations why we get aggressive with our schedule, and we create capacity when it's possible to do so, when we prioritize service as Christians as an act of our worship. So here we go. I want to I share three things with you, and we're going to go pretty quick here. The first reason why we serve is it's good for the people that we serve. We're able to bring to them in tangible ways the love of God and the mercy of God. And I'd like, to meet, I'd like for you to meet someone. Uh, his name is Francisco. And so I told you the story of Honduras. He's one of the guys uh, that we were able to help. He is a farmer uh, that lives in this little mountainous Uh, village up in the jungles about an hour outside of one of their uh, big cities San Pedro Suva in this little village called Chinda. And they were devastated by Hurricane Mitch. He lost his house. His house was down by the river. It got swept away. He told me the story of how he barely got out of there with his life. And many people in the village uh, suffered greatly during this time. And so Um, Francisco was very, very thankful for all the things we were able to do for him. One of them was uh, that we were able to build a home uh, for him. So here's the home that uh, we were able to build for Francisco. I know it doesn't look like much, but in that village, this was a really great house, right? Because it didn't leak um, and it gave him shelter from the elements and it gave him a roof over his head and a place to cook and a place to uh, care for his family. It was actually a pretty nice home in the place where he lived in Chinda. And uh, we were able to help build that for him. And so not only did we able to, were we able to build him a home, Francisco came to know the Lord. He became a Christian. And, um, and it's really cool. So the next slide is a picture of him in his new house with his granddaughters. And what's cool is we not only were able to see a number of people come to Christ, we were able to start a church there with all the people who become Christians. And so this is his daughter, Francisco couldn't read. And so his granddaughter who could read would read the scripture and they would gather together in homes and they would discuss it there. Uh, Just one of my favorite pictures. Isn't that beautiful? Um, And so here we just see the power of God. What a delight to be able to be used of God in this way. When we see God take our meeker efforts. And to make a difference in the life of a suffering person. That's just motivating. There's just something about that that's right. And we know deep within our heart, this is what we're here for. This is what's going on in the mind and the heart of our God. That he loves people with a love that we can't even begin to imagine. And he draws near to us when our life is difficult. When we're at our lowest point, God is there but he wants to send us his people. And I see moments like this as those thin spots between earth and heaven, where heaven comes near and we're able to get just a a vague glimpse of what is to come, what is in the mind of our God. And it's just so rich, it just fills our souls because we know this is what we were created for. We know this is what God intended for us, his people, to be involved with and to be about. And so that is why we do this. It is good for those that we serve. And we become like our God when we choose to give our lives and our worship in this way. So not only is it good for those that we serve, another cool thing is it's really good for our community. It's good for us. It's good for this place. We like to say around here that the secret to having deep and abiding and meaningful relationships is to be united around a common purpose. I I just love that. If you're pursuing relationship, kind of the traditional standard way, hey, there's somebody that seems pretty cool. That'd be a fun group to be a part of. Yeah, that kind of works. But oftentimes, those just end up being shallow and not very deep relationship. You ever notice that? Here's the secret to deep relationship, and it's in the scripture. It's when we unite around a common purpose. First and foremost, you're gonna find yourself being friends with people that you otherwise might not have pursued uh, because of the external things that may have drawn you to that relationship. So you get a breadth of relationship that's different. But it's not only broader, it's deeper. There's just something that happens when we unite in purpose. And so O.J. and I were going over the message here um, this Wednesday when we went out to lunch, and I said, O.J., where has this happened at Lake Mary? Where have you seen that here? And I know I'm looking around the audience and I'm seeing many of the faces that he had in mind when he shared with me the stories. He just said, you know, when, when we were in the high school, there was just something about when we would go out and just get there early and we'd sweat together and we'd roll out chairs and we'd put up the pipe and the drape When we get there on Saturday night and we just work really hard to make sure everything was set up for Sunday morning and then nine o'clock we'd have pizza together and we'd sit and laugh and enjoy our relationship as we were growing deeper in our friendship and our kids were running around and playing and running all over the place. He said I just I just treasure those days. He said, but one just happened recently too that that when they kind of told us we couldn't be here while they were testing for sinkholes, good news, no sinkholes, Um, but we couldn't be here uh, right in the midst of our Christmas services. And um, and so you all just, I, I got a chance to come speak that day when we were out at the Y, unbelievable. And to OJ, that just signified just how committed you guys are to making this place happen. And he's seeing the depth of relationship that comes out of that. And you're experiencing what I'm talking about. We're going to talk about this a little bit more in the coming weeks. But it's good for us when we serve because we go deeper in our relationship when we're united in this common purpose of worshiping God in this way. And so it's not only good for the people we serve. It's not only good for our community. It's good for our souls. It's good for you. It's good for me. I know I need this one personally. Sometimes service comes naturally and I just see a need and it's like out of the overflow of my heart. I'm excited to be able to meet that need. And I'm sure many of you can relate to that as well. Uh, but truth be told, other times it's a choice. Many times it's a choice. It's a choice to serve my wife and kids. It's a choice to serve my coworkers. It's a choice to serve the people around me because a lot of times in my humanists, My first instinct is to care about me. But God's saying, let me take care of you and I want you to focus on others. And so this is something that's cultivated. In this sense, it's a spiritual discipline, like going to work out and like uh, pursuing a healthy lifestyle. And it's not our first instinct by nature but it's cultivated. And if you get in the regular habit of making these little choices day by day, moment by moment, situation by situation, in time you move from acts of service to actually becoming a servant so that your character changes and it begins to define who you are. So why is this good for our souls? Why is it good to become a servant? Well, I think a couple of reasons. In our society, it's easy to become self-sufficient, isn't it? I mean, we've got so much material abundance. We've got so much provision that we don't really have a sense of our need of God in our culture. And so that's one reason. Another reason is many of you have responsibilities for others. Many of you have the responsibilities and um, dare I say power in the life of other people. And that's some pretty heady stuff. You see self-sufficiency and power are both petri dishes for the plague of pride within the human heart and it's something that if we're not careful it needs to be checked and checked regularly You see, we think greatness in our society is going to make us secure. We think our net worth is equal to our self-worth, but it's not. It's only an illusion that tempts us to draw our hearts away from God and to put our worship in those things as opposed to the worship the way God wants us to. And so that's why Jesus called us in Matthew 25 and many other places that if you want to be the greatest among you, be the servant. Leadership in God's world is service. Listen to what Dallas Willard says. He says, But I believe the discipline of service is even more important for Christians who find themselves in positions of influence, power, and leadership. To live as a servant while filling socially important roles is one of the greatest challenges any disciple will ever face. We train ourselves through our service to exercise great power without corrupting our soul. Isn't that great? That's why we serve. Jesus demonstrated this kind of service, a spiritual authority that's not found in position or title, but a towel that was wrapped around his waist as he washed his disciples' feet. And so every time we serve, we remind ourselves that we're not all that, We too are in need of service. We need rescue. There's something we cannot do for ourselves that only God can do for us. And so we lean into him. It helps us to stay grounded and humble and positions us to worship him in a way that he wants us to worship him by caring about what he cares about. The disenfranchised, the needy, the poor, the hurting, those who are far from God. That's our worship demonstrating his power through humility.